0: As you stand, uh, let's uh, just pray. Lord God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and died and rose again so that we might have a new relationship with you, God the Father. We praise and thank you that you have made everything well of our soul if we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to hear your words now. Help us uh, to hear your voice speaking directly to us, and may we be changed and transformed by your Bible today, in the name of Christ, Amen. Please sit down. As uh, most of you know, I think um, somehow I managed to uh, marry a nice girl, um, a nice girl from uh, Spain, a nice girl from a convent school. And uh, so, so Sylvia knew lots of uh, nuns and priests growing up in, uh, in her Roman Catholic family, in the Roman Catholic convent school. And she used to say uh, that many of those nuns really, really loved Jesus. She could tell that they really loved Jesus. They had a relationship with Jesus that she didn't have at that time. And none of her family had, and none of her friends had. But these nuns were special. They knew Jesus somehow. So the title of today's talk is uh, Questions of Life. Do I have to be a monk or a nun? And you're obviously on the edge of your seats uh, waiting to hear the answer to that question. So I won't keep you hanging about. The answer, of course, is yes and no. But we'll come back to that later. So we're in the book of Numbers. But uh, before we look at uh, chapter 6, it might be worth uh, recapping the Bible so far. We've got a little bit of time tonight, haven't we? Because the first five books, of which uh, Numbers is obviously um, the fourth, uh, is uh, foundational to the whole of the Bible, to our understanding of the Bible. So we start with Genesis, where we see the impact of the fall and sin entering the world, and the beginnings of God's rescue plan through the choosing of Abraham, And giving of God's faithful promises, uh, which we call the covenants, which would eventually lead them into a new relationship with God and into a new land as the people of God. And in Exodus, we see the people in a mess, in a mess of their own making, in slavery in Egypt, and having to be rescued from Pharaoh and his army. So they were brought out of slavery at the very high price of the firstborn sons of Egypt. A price... In fact, which must have broken God's heart, if you think about it, because those Egyptian firstborn children were as much his creation as the people of Israel who he was trying to rescue. Then in Leviticus, we see the outworkings of that covenant, and we see how the people were to fulfill their part in the covenant by keeping various rituals and social laws. And here in Numbers, uh, if you just turn to page 136 for a moment, that's Numbers chapter 2, and verse 34, which is the top left of that page, 136. We read, So the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded Moses. That is the way they encamped under their standards, and that is the way they set out each river's clan and family. So last week we were looking at uh, the counting of the clans and the families, and we were looking at that in chapter one. Uh, and they were, and at this time they're still encamped, but they have been learning how to live under God's law. And very soon we will see them set off from their camp and into the wilderness, the 40 years in the wilderness, um, as they trek towards the Promised Land and go around in a few circles whilst they're at it. So by the time we get to Numbers, the people have been ruined. We've read about that in Genesis. They've been redeemed in Exodus, and they've learned how to live properly. In other words, how to be holy people in Leviticus. And now they're almost ready, and they're prepared to do everything that the Lord has commanded them through Moses as they set out on their journey to the Promised Land. So all that remains is to count the people in chapters 1 and 2. As you know, it's always handy to remember how many children you have before you head out on the trip, just so you can check they're still all there. They needed to divvy out the tasks. In chapter 2, chapter 2 discusses who's going to carry the tent pegs and the guy ropes. It's all very important stuff. Chapter 4, who's going to clean up the mess around the altar when they uh, pull up the camp and put its protective cover on to take it on to the next place. In chapter 5, there's instructions about how to keep the camp clean and healthy, plus uh, quite a little bit of uh, ancient marriage guidance in case things get a little bit rocky. Along the way, my parents always used to argue the day before we went on uh, on a camping trip as they tried to load the car and get everything straight and ready. In chapters uh, 7, 8, and 9, they uh, try out uh, their new tent. It's a bit like putting your tent up in the garden before you set off on the trip, just to make sure that you remember how it all goes up. And then they dedicate the tabernacle. They ordain the priests. They celebrate the Passover. And in chapter 10, they blow some trumpets... And off they go into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And you might remember that last week at the beginning of the service, I said that wilderness was the Hebrew name for this book in the Bible. We call it Numbers from the Greek version, uh, but in Hebrew it's called the book of the wilderness. So here we are in chapter 6. So, chapter 6 on page 140. And they're coming to the end of all these preparations. It's just before the dedications and ordinations take place. And suddenly we find this little section here in chapter 6 about these weird people called the Nazarites. So what's all that about? And why is it important to hear about them now before they set off into the desert? Well, anybody could choose to be a Nazarite, men or women. Uh, They weren't priests, they were lay people. But in some ways, their commitment and way of life was even stricter than it was for the priests. So in verse 1, we see that they had made a special vow to God. And that vow was a vow of separation to the Lord. And that's where the term Nazarite comes from. It comes from the Hebrew word nazir, meaning set apart. And yet we mustn't imagine that these people were like monks and nuns locked away in their cloisters, cloistered monasteries. Because the Nazarites were people who remained in their community, got on with their everyday lives and mixed with ordinary people. So their vocation is one of separation or holiness, but lived out in an everyday context. And I just want to emphasise three aspects of this separation. And they all begin with C. Very rare. I managed to get three points beginning with C, but here they are. It was a choice. Their vows were voluntary. It was conspicuous. Their lifestyle was indicative of something bigger than themselves and it was costly. So choice, conspicuous, and costly. It was a choice because in verse 1, we see that the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of our separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, then, and he goes on. You see, it was a choice. It was an option that they took. Nobody forced them into it. It was something that they decided to do. And then we go on and we see three very conspicuous requirements. So first in verse 3, They were to abstain from wine and fermented drinks. And in fact, anything to do with the grape, even the skin, whether it's alcoholic or not. So if a Nazarite was taken to hospital, it's no good taking them a bag of grapes, because that's forbidden and you would look pretty stupid. So why do we get this very strict command? I mean, the priests weren't allowed to drink alcohol either. But that was only when they were actually serving in temple. I mean, they needed their wits about them to remember all the regulations that they had to learn, and so they didn't burn themselves in the old time. It made perfect sense. Um, And there was no prohibition for them against the the innocent, non-alcoholic grape. But it was extra important for Nazarites. And why? Because they were heading into the desert. And the desert, or the wilderness, is always important in the Bible because it's seen as a place of training or testing. So, for example, you can probably think of these examples yourselves, but you have Moses out in the desert at Horeb, a fugitive from murder and his own wicked temper, and he was called there and prepared by God for his role in leading the Exodus. You see Elijah in the desert, fed by ravens under command of God and sustained by a widow uh, in preparation for his task of tackling King Obadiah and ridiculing the prophets of Baal. Moving forward we see Jesus who was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. And in the book of Revelation we even see the Christian church portrayed as a woman fleeing into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she is taken care of for 1,260 days. So this desert, this wilderness was a place of preparation and the Nazarites abstained from alcohol as an outward and visible sign to the fact that they were under training. And the apparently harmless scrape as a sign that they were under God's discipline. Sometimes you get orders, don't you? That don't seem to make sense, but you have to follow them anyway. So as the people set out in the march, it was essential that they followed orders and kept their wits about them. And the Nazarites who walked amongst them, as ordinary people with them, were a visible reminder of that amongst them. The second requirement is even more conspicuous. So verse 5. During the entire period of this vow... Of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. In other words, he must look like Neil out of the young ones. It was an outward and visible sign. They stood out. People could point and say, Look, there's a Nazarite. But it's more than that, because the whole hair thing was symbolic. Uh, verse 7 says, The symbol of his separation to God is on his head. You see, the hair spoke symbolically of God being their head. When somebody saw a Nazarite, they thought, there goes a man or woman who is fully submitted to God. God is their head. God is an authority over them. And that's why at the end of the vow period, the hair had to be shaved off in verse 18 and put in the fire on the altar because they were no longer deditate, dedicated to God in that special kind of way. Thirdly, they were conspicuous because they had to abstain from any contact with dead people. Now, dead people were always bad news uh, in the Old Testament. Anyone who came into contact uh, with them became unclean. But minor uncleanness for the ordinary person could be cleansed by washing with water and waiting outside of the camp until evening. More serious pollution needed a seven-day wait and the offering of a pigeon or two. But the problem could be solved relatively easy, easily, even for a priest. But not so for a Nazarite. See, they weren't allowed to come into contact with any dead person, even if it was their father or mother or brother or sister. They weren't allowed to go near them. They weren't allowed to mourn, in other words. And if somebody had the impertinence and audacity to drop dead in front of them, then they were defiled completely by accident. And if they were defiled, even by accident, not only did they have to make the usual offerings of two doves or two pigeons, but they had to go to the expense of buying a lamb for sacrifice. Not only that, but they had to make the vow of separation all over again. They had to shave off their hair, verse 9. They had to rededicate themselves, verse 12. And all the previous days didn't count. So it's a bit like playing this huge game of snakes and ladders. And just on the final sprint towards the end, you hit a snake and you have to slide all the way back down to the start again. It was really bad news. So what do we learn from this? Well, firstly, I'd say don't rely on a Nazarite to give you first aid, because they are probably hot-foot out in the room as soon as you said the words hot flush. But more importantly, this death taboo was a kind of denial, a denial of death, but not in the kind of unhealthy way that our society indulges in today, I'm just pretending it doesn't happen and not talking about it. But I think, in a way, they were pointing us forwards. They were pointing us forward to a time when there will be no death when they won't be confronted by the decay and pain of death. So they're conspicuous. They were conspicuous by the abstention from alcohol and grapes, they reminded people that they were in training and under discipline, by their long hair, reminding people that they were under God's authority, and by this uh, death taboo. They pointed forward to a time when there would be no death. Finally, their vow of separation was costly. So if you look at verses 13 to 21... It shows the cost of their vow. They show the importance of their consecration to God. They show it's not easily put down or loosed. You see, if they want out from their vow, in verse 14 they have to present a lamb without defect for sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering. Together they make the grain offerings and drink offerings, a basket full of bread and cakes and wafers. And normally uh, some of this food would be shared back again with the congregation and the people bringing the sacrifice. But in this case, the priest takes a much larger chunk for himself. And he goes away with the entire boiled shoulder of the ram, a cake and a wafer. They are holy, verse 20 says, and they belong to the priest. And he also gets to keep a thigh and a breast as a kind of special bonus, uh, because this was a special vow to the Lord, and special vows have special rates of decommissioning. And that was just a minimum. I mean, this vow was means-tested, so if the Nazarite could afford to give more, uh, in verse 21, he was to give it. So in, in either case, it was very costly to, to make this vow and to leave this vow. It was a choice, it was conspicuous, and it was costly. But there are more of these Nazarites than you might expect. So if you look through the Old Testament, there are many people who show at least some, some of the characteristics of the Nazarite's so in Genesis chapter 49, you have Joseph who was singled out from among his brothers. He, he was Nazir, the, the Hebrew word. He was set apart from his brothers to complete God's special purpose for him. In Judges 13, you have Samson. I mean, he was certainly a Nazirite. He was set apart from God uh, from the day of birth uh, by his, a prayer of his mother. And when you think of Samson, you think of his superhuman strength and his long hair. But, of course, his real strength wasn't really his own. In fact, he's a terrible example of a Nazarite. I mean, he's always going to places, to banquets and places where there might be alcohol. And he's getting involved with all these Philistine women that he shouldn't have been. And, and his strength was said to lie in his hair. So when Delilah gets the scissors out and cuts it all off, he loses all his strength. But why is that? It's because symbolically, he is no longer under the authority of the Lord. God is no longer his head. And that's why he goes all weak at the knees and doesn't regain his strength until his hair starts to grow back again. And he comes under God's headship again. Which unfortunately for the Philistines is a time when they put him between the two columns and he becomes the funniest man in the Bible by bringing the house down. Then there's Elijah out in the desert. And 2 Kings chapter 1 tells us that he was a hairy man. And Amos refers to the Nazarites and his prophecy. And Jewish historians show that they were still popular even in the first century. If you think about it, John the Baptist. There he was, out in the desert, no, no alcohol, uh, bad hair. And then supremely, there was Christ. And if you're still with me, you'll say, but Christ didn't drink, uh, uh, did drink alcohol. And There's no mention of any hair problems there. And he certainly didn't have any problems with dead bodies, did he? In fact, in the case of Lazarus, he seemed to hang around a while to make sure that Lazarus truly was dead before he turned up. How could Jesus be a Nazarite? Well, there's a little verse in Matthew, in chapter 2, verse 23. You might want to look it up. It's on page 967. And Matthew, there makes this strange reference to Jesus' home village. He says... And he went and lived in the town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this little bit is very uncertain, so don't quote me. But it might be that people in Matthew's day just uh, couldn't believe that anything good would come from this little village called Nazareth. Hence the objection, but he's just a Nazarene. But there were several places called Nazareth in, in Israel at the time. And the Hebrew root is the same word that brings us Nazir or Nazarite. So it might be that these these places were places where it was known Nazarites tended to live. They tended to hang out. So was Jesus a Nazarite? Was he really, Matthew? Is that what you're trying to tell us? Well, he was in the sense of Hebrews 7 and verse 26. You see, the Nazarites, the requirements for Jesus were even more exacting than the requirements For a priest, Jesus met our needs by being, as it says in Hebrews, holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And the task he was given was to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So, when you read Amos, Amos compares the Nazarites to a prophet's And in a way, they lived among the people and they pointed forward like a prophet does in some ways, like signposts. And Christ was the perfect fulfillment of their vows. As the fulfillment of those vows, he didn't need the conspicuous outward signs of training and discipline, the abstinence from alcohol and grapes. He was already perfectly blameless and pure. He didn't need the conspicuous sign of long hair, symbolizing that he was under God's authority. God was declaring him to be his beloved son by a big voice coming out of heaven. The power of the Father simply oozed out of Jesus everywhere he went. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. And Jesus didn't need to worry about being contaminated by death. He was the resurrection of life. Dead people couldn't stay dead around him. He was life itself. But what has this all got to do with us? Do I want you to become monks and nuns? Do I want you to abstain from alcohol, hand in your grapes, leave your hair to grow long and avoid uh, dead people on the way home? Well, no. But I do want you, if you haven't already, to make a choice. You see, like Nazarites, Nazarites, each one of us has to decide whether we're going to live for ourselves or whether we're going to dedicate ourselves to God. It's a choice. It's something that you have to look into and think really hard about. But there comes a time when you actually need to stop thinking, and you just need to decide. You'll never have all the answers. You'll never understand all those to know about God. None of us do in this room. You just have to decide, am I going to live for me, or for God? That's the choice. And if some of you are still thinking about that decision, then we do have a new course, starting uh, on February 6th, for Christianity Explored. And that's a great opportunity for you to ask questions and to explore Christian faith for yourself. Uh, See me afterwards if you'd like to do that. And yes, it is a costly choice. But I think many of us here have discovered that it's probably the best choice we've ever made. The choice to dedicate ourselves to God was the most fulfilling decision we've ever made in our lives. And once we've made that choice, we do need to be conspicuous about the way we live our lives. You see, in some ways, we're still like the Israelites on their pilgrim march towards the Promised Land. As Christians, we are marked out for God. We know where we're going. There's no pillars of cloud or fire for us uh, leading the way, but we do have the flames of the Holy Spirit living within us. We are marked out as clearly as any of those ancient Israelites ever experienced. And yet life in this world does seem like a desert sometimes, a place of training and preparation for that better place yet to come, and our spirit groans within us in anticipation of glory. But does that mean we need to give up alcohol? Well, I don't think we do. Not like Jesus. Um, just like Jesus, we don't necessarily need those outward signs. But we might want to think about where we're going and what we need to do to keep us alert and prepared for that journey. And surely part of that is feeding ourselves with what is good from the Bible. It's about making it our duty and our discipline to find out something new about the Lord every day, to learn something new about it, and to put it in practice in our lives. And we're under the authority of God. So do we need an outward symbol of that? Should we wear funny clothes, or never leave the house without a cross, or a not ashamed wristband? Well, again, not necessarily. But people around us do need to know that we're under the headship of Christ, don't we? Are our lives centred around ourselves and what we want to do? Or can people see a different criteria operating in the way we make decisions? Can they see a different priority in our lives? If you had to go into work tomorrow to tell your boss that you decided to resign because you were going to go and work with some poor people in Manchester or asylum seekers, or to leave the hospital where you work and work as a doctor in Papua New Guinea where 1,300 people die each year because of HIV-AIDS, would they be surprised at your decision? Or would they say, you know, I'm not surprised. There's been something different about you since the day you began working here. You've always had other priorities in your lives. And the thing about dead people? Well, perhaps, as I said, the Nazarites were pointing forward to a time when there'd be no longer any death. Death simply didn't come into their lives. It simply wasn't an experience of their lives. And when Jesus came... He conquered death. He was tough on death and the causes of death, which is our sin. He made himself a sacrifice for our sin. So are we frightened to speak about death? Is death a taboo subject with us? I mean, in a sense, death has no meaning for us. It's not an experience that we shall ever face in our lives. Yes, we will die, our physical bodies will river and fade but our eternal bodies will live forever with Christ in heaven. I wonder whether we can point people to that existence where there is no death, no suffering, no pain. Can we point them to Jesus? Because that's what we want to do, isn't it? We want to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves. You don't want people to say, look at that funny man there with the, uh, with the hair. He doesn't drink anything, you know. No, we want people to see us. And see a people in training, a people in training for righteousness, a righteousness that is coming. They need to see a person who's fully and completely under the headship of God, and a person who lives a life in the hope of life without death, a life that only comes through following Jesus. So let's just bow our heads and pray. Such a high priest meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Lord God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came to live on this earth. We thank you that, like the Nazarites, he lived among the people as an ordinary person, and yet he was pure and blameless and holy, set apart from sinners. We thank you, Lord, that he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, that we might begin a new relationship with you, a new relationship in training, in training for righteousness, making us more like your Son, Jesus Christ, every day as we head towards the promise of glory the promise of eternal life in heaven, enjoying your presence forever. Lord, if we haven't yet accepted the truth of that statement, Lord, may we think about that tonight, and may we come to you in repentance and belief. If we've accepted already, Lord, may we commit ourselves once again to being conspicuous witnesses, visible witnesses, to the truth of your gospel. In the name of Christ, amen.